Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Tennis Evolution's Jeff Salzenstein, great friend of the program. We discuss everything from the from going all the way back to the French Open final, to discussing Alexander Zverev and Andre Rublev and Novak Djokovic clinching the year at number one. Just a, an overall catch up with our good friend Jeff Salzenstein. Also, in this week's Monday match analysis, of course, a preview of the Paris Masters, a draw preview. Day one in the book, so some results have already gone final. But uh, we will power through and preview the rest of the tournament from there. And uh, first up on the program is another discussion of an Andre Rublev title, his fifth of 2020. Now, just to set the record straight, he's entered in 12 tournaments all season long. So he is 5 for 12 in lifting the trophy at the end. A pretty unbelievable rate, success rate couple of points. I know that I've kind of belabored the Andre Rublev talk as of late. I think there are a couple things that I haven't added that I can add now. I've talked about how his spot serving is much better. This was a good match uh, that really demonstrated that. But why is it so important that Rublev's spot serving is good? It's because I'm still not in love with his defense. I really don't love it. I'm not a very big fan. <laughs> I think that, generally speaking, he's very aggressive from defensive positions. I think he goes for a lot, which is which is fine. Um, I think that there is kind of two two sectors. I would say of Andre Rublev's defense. There's either he he's either using his continental grip and you know squash defense on the forehand side. It's okay. He doesn't have great feel for it backhand slice defense it's not great I just don't think I just don't think he has an amazing feel for it I think it also looks a little bit the technique on it sometimes looks unnatural in the movement uh, but more often than not he's trying to still rip it and I don't think he defends with a lot of margin not a lot of height over the net I often find when he's pulled out wide and he hits running forehands instead of hitting it with Again, more margin over the net that would give him more time to recover over the middle. I find that he hits it very hard and rather low. And I find he hits the net a lot from defensive positions, which, if anything, you you generally want to miss long because you want to, again, try to get that extra margin over the net, add some height, give yourself some time to recover uh, your court position, and hopefully get some decent depth on the ball. Sometimes I feel like Rublev, from a defensive position, he rips the ball. It's short. It's it's hard. It's not overly effective. Well, guess what? When you hit a good serve, you don't generally need to defend from, from that point on. And that's what Rublev really did to Lorenzo Sinego. Great run by the 25-year-old Italian. Congratulations to him on an unbelievable week. Uh, backing up his win over Novak Djokovic with uh, more impressive victories. He beat Dan Evans, correct, in the semifinal. Um, so I think the fact that Rublev is finding, look, he, he's so good behind his serve. So good. So, so good. When he's putting first serves in the corners, 
it's really difficult to deal with because when the ball drops short against Andrei Rublev, he just doesn't waste his opportunity, especially on the forehand side, but even still on the backhand side. Again, he's, he's very even, which I've talked about before. The second thing I think is a great thing to watch with Rublev. Look how often he's going down the line. Watch how often he's redirecting the ball. And look at the targets he's hitting to. If I were to summarize what makes Andre Rublev so special, low percentage, low percentage baseline intention with high percentage results. If you look at the if you look at the targets that he's hitting to, they are small targets. They are fine margins. If you look at how often he's redirecting the ball down the line and on his backhand, just as readily as he is on his forehand. If you look at those two things and you really think about it, he's not playing high percentage tennis. It's only high percentage for Andre Rublev. Jeff Salzenstein made an Andre Agassi comparison during our conversation. I really like it. I do like it. Um, the aggressive returning, by the way. I know last time I covered the Chorich win in St. Petersburg, terrible returning day for Rublev against Sinego, who's got a great serve, excellent returning day from Rublev. Look at the game at four all in the second set when Andre Rublev broke serve. Unbelievable aggressive returning. Uh, but, but Agassi did the same thing. He went for small targets. He redirected the ball and a lot of people talk about Rublev's power. Yeah, Rublev's got power, but he's got precision too. He really does. It's not It's not always about the power. He's hitting good angles. He's hitting close to the line. He's changing direction all the time. And these are difficult shots he's going for. And he's just not missing very often. That's that. Uh, thumbnail, Paris Masters. Oops, there it is. On your screen, if you are watching on YouTube, a friendly reminder that Monday Match Analysis is available on all podcast platforms. Uh, but yeah, no no fans. What is with the camera angle, by the way? Why does the court look square? Can anyone who knows geometry or physics, or I don't know what it is, explain to me why on center court, the camera angle in Paris, it looks like the tennis court is square? Folks, a tennis court is a rectangle. That is a verifiable fact. But when you watch Paris, it looks like a square. Can someone explain this to me? I would love it if you could. Without further ado, let's preview the tournament. Paris is a tournament that can produce some wacky results. And it has in the past. I know it very affectionately as David Ferrer's only Masters 1000 title, which is strange, right? An indoor hardcore. It is Karen Hatchinov's only Masters 1000 title. It is Jack Sock's only Master 1000 title. And Rafael Nadal. Rafael Nadal has not won it yet. And let's start with him, the top seed. In my opinion, um, before I get into the quarter, why is Nadal playing this tournament? I think the fact that he hasn't won it has a is a big deal. I think the fact that um, he has not competed a lot in 2020 is also a big deal. And look, 
something to be said for the love of competition. I certainly miss it when I don't compete for a while, and I'm sure I miss it a lot less than Rafa Nadal. So, you know, I also think, I also think that it's a challenge. And who doesn't love what competitor? What tennis player doesn't love a challenge? Indoor hard court, a tournament that Nadal has never won. I'm sure Nadal is, you know, looking down the stretch, and he's excited for for the challenge with with some new with some new weapons that he has in his game, which still has not materialized into a lot of success on indoor hardcore. I would say ever since 2018, the Moya effect has taken charge. The aggressive first forehands, the tweaking, the constant tweaking of the service technique, uh, the, the greater emphasis on backhand variety. All these things I think that have taken hold since 2018, they've not materialized in results on indoor hard, but I'm but the sample size is small and I'm wondering if that is still yet to happen. Anyway, I think Nadal is very motivated and it is a somewhat diluted field than than what he would be used to. Nadal's quarter with is with David Gafan, PCB and Borna Chorich. Dark horse is Jan Leonard Struff. Jan Leonard Struff must be one of the most frequent dark horse ca- uh, players in Monday match analysis history. I mean, I don't have the stats on this. I don't know, but Jan Leonard Struff seems to be a dark horse all the time, and he generally proves me correct. I think. I think generally he he makes a run. Uh, so I think he he is rather dangerous. These are. Without the elements, those nice, serene indoor conditions, a player who wants to serve big and hit to, you know, ultra aggressive, small margin kind of tennis is going to always enjoy the indoor conditions. By the way, I don't consider Paris to be very fast. I don't think it's the fastest court in the world. Struff likes that, actually. I I think Struff... I think Struff... um, kind of enjoys hitting through courts that that other others struggle to hit through. Upset alert is David Gafan. Um he has not seemed right to me mentally for a little while. I, I don't know, you know, I, I think that he's been kind of upfront that he's been distracted at times by this pandemic. Uh but I just don't I haven't been impressed with with what I've seen from him. Um, so Chekinato or Gombos in the next round, unless, unless that match already, was that match already played? Chekinato, Gombos? No, I don't think so. Anyway, I do think that Gafan falls to Jan Leonard Struff. Early popcorn match, Nadal against his countryman Feliciano Lopez. Always fun watching Nadal play someone who's going to serve volley a bunch, right? What's the head-to-head? Let me check that real quick. Um... Nadal Lopez. Um, Nadal leads 9-4. That's pretty good for Lopez. Lopez is on a two-match winning streak against Nadal. Um, wow. How about that? But they haven't faced off since 2015. Okay, so you see my impromptu research is making me even more confident about my early popcorn pick. I don't know. A lot of people always say, why don't you just... Serve volley on Nadal. It's obviously going to work really easily. Everyone is 
you know, everyone must have a, a head full of air that they can't figure this out. So, you know, it's always good to see this this matchup and, and see how, how Nadal handles it. Of course, he's just fine. And the heavy topspin that Nadal is able to generate gives him a great ability to dip the return low. And he's got really the best passing shots in the game for my money. So, you know, I've never subscribed to the theory that players are missing this easy opportunity to serve volley in Nadal, but I'm still very excited to see Lopez against Nadal. Uh, let's let's see what happens. And and Lopez has had a, a great deal of success against Rafa. So my quarterfinal, Nadal against Pablo Carreno Busta. I haven't even talked about PCB, so let me just quickly address him. Uh, beat Hugo Gaston today, uh, today already. Uh, he will face off against... Oh, no, no, no. It would be him playing Jan Lennart Struff. Okay, so Struff for PCB, basically, in the quarterfinals. Good uh, good quarter for Nadal. A good quarter for Nadal. We all know that PCB doesn't give him give him a lot of trouble. We all know that Jan Lennart Struff doesn't give any of the top players much trouble. Moving ahead to Alexander Zverev's quarter. He is the four seed. Of course, one of the intriguing things is just how will will Zverev play this week after showing tremendous form in Cologne. Since then, another thing that will be discussed later in the show when I speak with Jeff Salzenstein, but since then, uh, two major off-the-court stories involving Alexander Zverev. I did uh, also cover that in Friday's Mailbag. Andre Rublev and Stan Wawrinka are the seeds in the quarter. Dan Evans is my dark horse, playing really good tennis. I always kind of like Dan Evans in best of three. I think he plays a pretty taxing style of tennis. I do think that he gets tired sometimes in the best of five format. Uh, but in best of three, when he, he can bring a lot of energy to the court... Uh, charge the net a lot. Indoor conditions, he is very, very comfortable with. He's uh, he's in a good run of form now. He wasn't before. Before last week, he wasn't. So he's got some momentum uh, building, and I do like his draw. Stan Wawrinka in the first round, uh, or excuse me, in the second round, because Wawrinka has a, a bye. So that becomes my early popcorn match. And Evans is in Rublev's section. We all know that Dan Evans is someone who can really attack Andre Rublev's weaknesses. Now, I'm not, I wouldn't normally be inclined to pick against Andre Rublev right now, but a part of me is just like, okay, when is the candle going to burn out for Andre Rublev? How many weeks in a row can can this guy continue? So it's it's kind of like Medvedev last summer where I think after uh, I predicted it pretty well last summer. I I said he'd go really far in Paris, uh, or excuse me, Shanghai. I said he'd go really far in Shanghai. And then we got to Paris, and I'm like, okay, enough of Medvedev. He's got to be tired. He's got to lose now. And ultimately, he did. I think in the first round or the second round. Um, So that's my reservation with Rublev. That's why I think Dan Evans can be a, a dark horse here. So... Uh, Zverev has a very kind draw. I think Zverev makes the quarterfinal, but I do have Dan Evans coming through. A surprise semifinalist. Even though he made a semifinal last week, I think that Dan Evans, a player who 
has has looked a lot better in 2020. In my opinion, he's playing the best tennis of his career this year. So this is what this is a time. He's the kind of player who I think could use this time of year, post U.S. Open, majors in the rearview. A player like Dan Evans, who's on the outskirts, still trying to raise his ranking, still trying to prove to himself that he can be a top contender in men's tennis. That's someone who I think can be really motivated and put together great results this time of year on indoor hardcore. So I'm expecting to see some surprises this week. After all, it is the Paris Masters. You, I got to pick someone to uh, be surprising and go f further than, than people expect. So I'll go with Dan Evans. Surely a tough one playing Vavrinka, and uh, probably the most popcorny of all my popcorn matches. Moving ahead to Daniil Medvedev's quarter, the number three seed, who is in kind of a tough run of form recently. Uh, top seeds in this quarter, after Medvedev, it's Schwartzman, Hachinov, and Alex Dimonor. Hachinov is out. He already lost. Um, he lost to Davidovich Fakina, who is my dark horse. I have spoken about how much I... I'm enthused by the Spaniards game and how well he's playing this. This win against Tachinov was actually his first top 20 win of the season. Now he is beating everyone else. Since the U.S. Open, Davidovich Fokina is 14-1 and against players outside the top 20. 14-1. and It's an unbelievable consistency. It tells you he's really... It, it tells you that he is closer closer than not to a top 20 level if you're beating everyone under that kind of that range with that kind of consistency um upset alert is daniel medvedev he faces kevin anderson you know i wouldn't be surprised if daniel medvedev proves me wrong here i wouldn't be shocked but i'm kind of playing to the confidence i'm playing to his draw he just lost to Kevin Anderson. Now he needs to play him again. And, uh, you know, he, he's got to turn things around. He can't be very confident right now. So, of all of the seeds that I think are most likely to lose, I, look at, I looked at Schwartzman. Not, I can't pick Hachinov. I look at Demon Orr, who I really like in these conditions. Daniil Medvedev, out of everyone, would be my upset alert. Um... But I am kind of holding out. I do have reservations about that upset alert pick. My quarterfinal is Schwartzman going through Demonor. Speaking of motivation, which of course I always value a lot um, at the Paris Masters, Schwartzman just needs to have a good tournament here, and then he will qualify for that eighth spot um, for the ATP final. So this could be a big one for Schwartzman. He's motivated, and his draw is quite kind. As much as I uh, respect Taylor Fritz, who plays Richard Gasquet in the first round, I do favor Fritz. Um, I think Fritz is a, is a really good player, but Schwartzman, I think, will be fairly comfortable in that matchup. Um, Fritz has a big game, though. He could He could cause some issues. After that, it is not a strong quarter. I mean, he's likely looking at... Um, He's likely looking at Davidovich Fokina if he wants to make the quarterfinal. Um, and then on the other side, Medvedev, not in a very good run of form. I do hope to see Schwartzman-Medvedev. I'd love to see that matchup. I really would. 
Uh, but Demonor, Demonor as well would be a lot of fun against Diego Schwartzman. I don't. I, I'm surprised I'm picking Diego inside because generally, you know, I I like a big server indoors where they have those quiet conditions to really hit their spots and the the to, you know it's easy to toss the ball and the depth perception comes a little bit easier. It's all it's all good for you know the big servers, but I do think that Schwartzman is playing the best tennis that I've ever seen him play. So I'm gonna ride that form. I'm going to ride that momentum and bank on his motivation to take him through to the semifinal. Next is Stefanos Tsitsipas's quarter. He's got Matteo Berrettini, Milos Raonic, and Felix Auger-Aliassime. My dark horse here is Hugo Umber, who's played some great tennis since the U.S. Open, ever since the pause, or, or excuse me, really since the French Open, I should say. Uh, he's got a great game indoors. Speaking of attacking tennis, speaking of uh, a forehand that is really potent. Now, sometimes it can it can misfire, but I really like it inside. I think it becomes a little bit more consistent. Uh, approaches the net. He's in his home country. Should be comfortable. Hugo Umber, a dark horse I feel good about. FAA already lost. He's all I got in terms of upset alert. Early popcorn match, Tsitsipas versus Umber. Umber's got the lefty serve. He should be able to attack the Tsitsipas backhand return. Uh, he should, you know, he should be able to execute that fairly well. Uh, so I would look forward to that. I think a lot of, I think we get some tie breaks in that one. I'd expect both players to hold serve quite well in that one. But I do like Milos Raonic here. I... I haven't really seen the form that I saw at the Western and Southern Open for Milos Raonic, but I'm kind of waiting for that same player to kind of poke his head through once again, and I I feel like it might happen here. Raonic is another guy who I think has something to prove. These are the players who I who I like in Paris, the players who might have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. I do like Tsitsipas on indoor hardcourt, but he's got to figure out the return. Uh, he's still not returning well enough. And if he plays Milos Raonic, obviously that is a player who will test his return to the greatest extent. Moving on to the final weekend, the great reveal in 3-2-1. And there you have it, folks. Nadal defeats Dan Evans in two sets. Raonic defeats Schwartzman in two sets. And Nadal gets through the Canadian missile in straight sets. So I think this could be the one. I think Nadal could win this one. I just don't think he'd be there if he wasn't feeling like he was ready to finally get this thing done. And man, I mean, the path that I have him going through is a is a pretty cushy path. Pretty cushy. I think that if anyone is going to really give him some issues, if they reach their peak level, I think Medvedev could give him issues. I know Nadal has been very successful against Medvedev in the past. Uh, more than anyone, I think Tsitsipas. If Tsitsipas reaches the final, maybe he can give Rafa some issues. Uh, but I just don't, that's not how I have things shaking out. So I like Nadal here. I do. Let's see what happens. This is interesting. He's going to be the one to watch, and uh, let's see if Rafa can get this this trophy under his belt, one that he has not had before. Okay, we will end 
today's Monday match analysis with our conversation with a great friend of the program, founder of Tennis Evolution, the incomparable Jeff Salzenstein. We're joined once again by Jeff Salzenstein of Tennis Evolution, a good friend of the program. Jeff, always great to catch up with you. How are you? Hey, I'm doing awesome today. It's moving day over here. And uh, thanks for bringing me on. I'm taking a little time out from unloading books and furniture. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talking some tennis. It looks great. I must say, I'm, I'm liking what you're doing over there already. And I'm sure it'll look even better very soon. <laughs> well, I can't even, I, I can't use the room I normally do with the green room in the green room because we're fixing that up. So I'm in the kitchen area right now, but thank you. Yep. Um, okay. Well, I'm sure a lot of people want me to ask you about the French Open final. I will oblige. And uh, let's start there. Um, the question I like to ask people about this match, because I think no one really expected it to be so one-sided. So with, with that in mind, what surprised you most, most about what happened? I would say the thing that surprised me the most was Novak Djokovic's inability to find that kind of inner fight or, or anger or, or that thing that sometimes he can find, that extra gear where when his back's against the wall, he actually turns it up another level. There were moments, you know, there were moments where he tried to get the crowd engaged, but it felt like in that match, the, 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 the power and the heaviness and the devastation of Nadal's game broke him down early and often. And that was probably most surprising that with everything on the line, the, you know, the grand slam, the major, you know, trying to dismantle Nadal and take him down that he didn't put up more of a fight mentally. And some people have commented that, Hey, did he get in a fight with his wife? Is something wrong with him? Cause he just seemed off in that match. And we've seen that before when he's struggling, when he went through that two year streak, maybe it wasn't as extreme as that, but there was an element of him not bringing his a game mentally and emotionally that day. But it was like the first, it was the first real loss that Djokovic had taken all season. So that it was such a sudden, you know, thing. I mean, it, it happened so quickly and so comprehensively. Uh, what, what do you make of Nadal's transformation as a clay court player? Because he doesn't look like he did in 2009 or two, uh, I shouldn't say 2009, 2008, uh, let's say. Um, you know, he, he's a different player. He's a more aggressive player. His court position was, was further up ahead. Uh, this new Nadal on clay, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, when you asked me what was the thing that surprised me the most, I gave you the, the Djokovic answer. And then as soon mm -hmm. as I finished, I started thinking, well, what's next down the line? And when it comes to Nadal, what I was, I guess, most surprised with is that the conditions were heavy, 50 degrees, he likes the ball to jump and to bounce. We know that Djokovic likes the ball a little bit lower. The fact that he was able to dominate on a court and with a ball that he didn't like at the big, beginning of the tournament, that's a surprise. You know, you would think that because of the conditions, it would be a great equalizer. When I was playing way back in the day, playing qualifying at the French Open, I remember I always joke with people because of my game style. 
I said, listen, if it's 72 degrees and sunny, I have a chance because I can serve, I can make the ball jump, I can keep the point shorter. But when it's 52 degrees and raining, I might as well pack my bags and get back on a Lufthansa flight, not a Lufthansa, an Air France flight back to Tampa or wherever I was living. Um, and that happened. Final round of qualifying, I played a match in similar conditions and it was a huge struggle for me. So the fact that Nadal was able to dominate, knowing that he didn't like the ball and the game style, uh, just again, a tribute to the type of player that he is, how good he is, because you said, okay, this Nadal now, and I've said this often, I don't think there's a player that has evolved his game more than Rafa Nadal. People still put him in that clay court. He's, a, he's the best clay quarter of all time. Well, yeah, that's because he's won a million French Opens. But he's also won, what, has he won two Wimbledons? Um, yes. He's won two Wimbledons. Uh, he's won multiple U.S. Opens. I mean, the guy has won on every surface. He wins on he, the indoor courts. Okay, he's not as good on the indoor courts. But maybe that's because the other guys are better on the indoor courts. So the fact that he has improved his serve, he's improved his forehand in terms of taking the ball earlier. I remember early in his career, he was hitting forehand cross-court rollers, and he still does that. But his down-the-line forehand might be his best forehand now. And so he has gone and his backhand, he's gone, he, he can rip the backhand everywhere. He's gone about his business on uh, focusing on the process, I think, better than anyone. Um, Djokovic obviously has evolved a tremendous amount as well. Those two have probably evolved their games the most. Uh, but, but Nadal, this, this style that he's playing is that more aggressive style that will allow him to play for multiple years. It'll allow him to win more majors. And I think that's, that's a tribute to him constantly focusing on improving. He's not a clay quarter. He's just a, a phenomenal tennis player, maybe the best tennis player of all time when it's all said and done. And that evolution and that approach is, is already paying off big time. It already has over and over and over again. Uh, moving ahead now, Paris Masters underway. Nadal will play. Djokovic will not. Uh, Novak lost last week to to Lorenzo Sinego comprehensively and basically said, when I clinch year-end number one, it was hard to maintain my intensity, my focus. What was this time of year like for you as a player? Let's start there, and then we'll maybe get to the top guys. Well, this time of year for me, again, I was never at the level of the players that we're talking about right now. You know, I was the consummate journeyman, although I don't take offense to it, but, you know, being ranked 180 in the world and being called a journeyman or 150 in the world or 125, that's pretty, that's ridiculous. But that's, that's where, I, that's the, that's the world that I lived in. And I'm cool with saying that, you know, I was a journeyman. I don't, obviously I don't have ego about that, but what I remember is that the U.S. Open would finish and you have a fall season. And for me, it, it really depended where my ranking was. Uh, typically playing challengers, you know, in the, in the fall in the U.S. There were times, I went to Asia a few times. I played in Tokyo. Uh, I played Mark Philippoussis in Shanghai one year. So I, I did the Asian swing once or twice. Uh, I went to Europe for some challengers, but I'm mainly playing the minor leagues or the qualifying of the Asian events and uh, that Asian tour. So these top guys after the U S open, at least they typically 
play a more limited schedule, especially if they're better, you know, they're going to play three or four weeks and they're going to play those master series events. And, you know, I think it is tough for a guy like Djokovic to stay motivated after he clinches number one and the tournament is not a slam. It's not a major. And so he just played the U S open where he had a pretty emotional setback there. He rebounded admirably at the French open. And the only reason he lost the French open is because he ran up against a buzzsaw. So he's arguably playing, you know, number one, number two in the world. And that's going to happen when you're not super engaged, you can lose. That's the thing about tennis. You can lose two and one. And it, there's no lot. Oftentimes there's no logic to tennis. You know, I remember one time I played in Luxembourg, probably November end of the year. And I played Yuri Novak and he was 24 in the world. And I played him on center court there in Luxembourg and I beat him six and four. One of my best friends of my career. And the next day I'm playing on a side indoor court against a guy ranked 400 in the world who had qualified and I lost to him. And I'm coming off the court going, how did I just beat a guy 20 in the world? Uh, pretty, you know, solidly six and four straight sets really took it to him. How do I beat him? And then 24 hours later, I lose to someone four in the world. There's no rhyme or reason to tennis any given day. Uh, a player can lose and a, and a player can win if they bring their best stuff, especially at that level. Do you take offense to, to Novak saying that basically he was at the tournament to play or, or at the tournament just for the rankings points. And then as soon as he got rid of the rankings points, a lot of people were disappointed with his effort. You know, I, that wasn't my reaction. I, I felt, okay, it's not a big deal. It's, one match that he couldn't get up for not the end of the world but some people got got upset about it so one is one is he played to get to the number one spot then i wonder well was he was he paid by vienna to play that tournament you know was he paid a lot of money under the table to show up and i think back again to when i played and uh, there were events in the u.s san jose atlanta and at those times, you know, they would pay Andre Agassi. Uh, I think it's under the table. I don't think it's like talked about, but, you know, he might get a quarter of a million dollars to show up and play at these events and he would lose first round. And he'd throw in, you know, he would throw, he'd just throw a lame effort. At, this was bef before he um, had his renaissance, had his evolution. So at the end of the day, and this is something I think we can maybe the rest of this conversation can evolve into more of this. Cause I know we're going to talk about some other players, but Jim Lair renowned sports psychologist. He ran the human performance Institute. He worked with number ones in the world. He worked with Olympic athletes. He just came out with a book and it's based on his 40, 40 years of research with uh, athletes and CEOs and leaders. And the number one trait that uh, demonstrated longevity a longevity around success was character. And so at the end of the day, uh, every athlete, every leader has to look at themselves in the mirror and see where their level of character is, because that will be the thing that ultimately allows them to persevere, to stay with it, to be resilient for a long period of time. And so a guy like Djokovic, when he doesn't put out a great effort, he has to look at himself in the mirror if he brought his A game, if he brought everything to the table. And that's probably one reason why I admire Rafa Nadal so much is because I feel like if Nadal signs up for a tournament, you're always going to get his best. 
And I just think it speaks to on a scale of one to 10 character wise, he's at a 10 plus and everybody else gets to look at him as the model. How do you want to show up? So that's where I probably look at the Djokovic, not really to judge him, not really to get, I'm not upset. Uh, you know, I'm sure he put out effort. Uh, maybe he wasn't totally into it, but he has to decide how he wants to show up and live his life. The U S open, he lost his temper in a fit of rage. He hit a tennis ball and it hit an umpire and he was defaulted. These are little signs that we see with him that, and I'm sure he's working on it. Um, but these are signs in him that he could, he could step up his ability uh, to, to demonstrate that integrity and character and at a higher level more often. Yeah. We'll see what he looks like in a couple of weeks. Next up for him is the, the ATP finals. Um, Andre let, me one more, let me add one more sure. thing. You know, again, I played on and off 11 years. It's not easy to get up every single week. And I can't say I ever tanked matches, but I can tell you, I went on the court sometimes with that hollow feeling like, what am I doing here? Why am I here? And I just, the flip side of it is I have so much respect for these guys that week in and week out are, are winning slams. They're always the favorite. They're always defending. Like they never can really play not to lose and be the underdog. So it's a lot of pressure. So there's a pressure valve that has to be released at times. And I think some of these guys, that's how they do it. Yeah. I, the way I looked at it, it was like, okay, you know, it's not like this is something that happens all the time. Novak, Novak wasn't feeling it. He didn't get up for one match. I think we all have those days where we, we go to work, whatever we do, and we're not, uh, we're not a hundred percent ourselves. So that's why I, I was able to kind of move on from it. I guess maybe in general, I don't have the most volatile reaction to, you know, different levels of effort. You know, I know people get really offended sometimes when players are having a bad day. Um, and I don't, I'm not really in that camp. Yeah. Um, especially, I don't know, Benoit Pair, Nick Kyrgios. I mean, I'm not someone who like is outraged when Benoit Pair is not bringing his best effort, but okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's go to a, a, a player who's won five titles in the last uh, 12 months. Or actually, no, it's six titles in the last 12 months. He's won five titles in 2020, talking about Andre Rublev. And he's entered 12. They're not the biggest titles. They're not 1,000s. They're not slams. But he is really on a tear this year. And I'm just curious, open-ended, what your thoughts are on Andre Rublev's game. First thing that comes to mind is the fact that he went through an injury. He had an injury and was out for a significant period of time. And oftentimes when an athlete uh, has an injury, they have the time off, they gain perspective, they gain a level of hunger and focus and a determination to come back better than ever. And so you'll often see a player at his level with his type of desire and, and uh, motivation to be a great player, to be the best that he can be. They often come back from a six month layoff and, and they can tear it up. I remember uh, 1997, I had just turned pro. I graduated from Stanford in 1996 and I had gotten to about 200 in the world. And I went down to Australia at the beginning of 1997. And the first week 
uh, before even the new year hit, uh, but turns into the new year was the Adelaide ATP event in Adelaide. That's where they used to have it. And I qualified that week. And I drew a gentleman, an Australian player by the name of Patrick Rafter. And I was playing him first round in Adelaide in his home country. And he was about 65 in the world. And he was coming back from six, six months off, four months off with an elbow or a shoulder issue. And that was in January of 1997. And nine months later, he won his first U.S. Open. And so his career was never the same. After he came back from those injuries, he was at a different level. I think he probably worked on his mental game. He worked on his physical game. And he obviously worked on his skills. And so I see that in Andre Rublev. This is a, this is a, I don't know if it's a modern version of Andre Agassi. It's a, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, Ernest Golbus. He's better than Golbus. I'm trying to think of, there's a couple other guys that Dmitry Tursunov comes to mind. He got about 20 in the world. Again, Rublev is better than a Tursunov, but these are guys that when I played them, and they were ripping off forehand and backhand and serving big and moving well. It's like, there's nowhere to go. There's, and there's power behind it. It's not like you're just playing a, a counter puncher. So I love what I love what he's doing with his game. Uh, Fernando Vicente is his coach from Spain. Uh, he was more of a counter puncher, but some of the little videos I've seen with them, they are not training him to be a counter puncher. He is ripping the cover off the ball every day, like an Agassi, like a Philippousis, like the big hitters. And it's that aggressive style of play that is so intimidating, so tough to deal with. It's like you're playing a machine. You, you feel like you're playing a machine. And he's, you can see he's trying to also win the court position battle as well. So that's going to set up nicely against guys like Team and Zarev if they're defensive and playing deeper. As his skills improve, um, he's got a real shot uh, to, to do some damage with that game. I have never thought about that Agassi comparison. Never thought to connect those two, but I, I really like it because Rublev is, is not, you know, he doesn't want to play defense, you know, and it's every single ball is struck with purpose, offensive purpose, and it doesn't matter where he is on the court and whether it's a forehand or a backhand, he can put it in either corner with power and precision. Um, so I, I like it. I like that. And he takes the ball early. He takes it on the rise uh, like Agassi. So what are your, so 20, 2021, how much damage can Rublev do? I think the sky's the limit. I mean, okay. I think the only thing, I think the only thing, holding him back could be his size. I mean, he's not the most, when I see him, he's, he doesn't look as big as in physical. It's almost like he's in a David Goffin mode, that counter puncher body, but then he hits the crap out of it. So um, he's getting bigger though. Yeah. He's getting bigger. So, you know, honestly, I think when I think of the, the players out there, uh, I, I mean, he could be top three, four in the world next year. I mean, I, I would not be surprised because he seems laser focused. Uh, his coach uh, was got to 20 in the world. His coach, I, I, I competed at the same time as Vicente. Uh, his coach obviously understands the defensive skills, so he can help him with that. 
Uh, he's coming back from injury, so he's, he's, he's hungry and he has more room for growth. He just seems very focused. He has that very kind of like Russian robot machine-like mentality, but mm-hmm. he seems to actually enjoy it. He enjoys it, whereas some of the other guys, the Spanish or the, not really Spanish, but the Russians that maybe trained in Spain, they're, they're a little mercurial. They're, they're, they're temperamental. And it seems he's handling that better. And, uh, you know, you get a true bounce on a hard court and the ball's in the strike zone, it's tough to deal with. And if you're moving as well as he is. So, yeah, I mean, top five in the world is, is definitely something uh, that I see. And I remember we had a conversation a couple years ago about Kachinov when he won Paris. Yep. My response to that was he, it, was, it was the last week of the year. And a lot of guys are tanking. They're done. And let's see how he does after that. And he really didn't do, he didn't, he didn't make that next jump after. Rublev is different to me because um, I think one, his game looks to me just more machine-like. And I don't say that in a bad way. I say that in like, where do you go when literally the ball is like hit on a dart everywhere. And he hits these great angles, even with pace. Uh, I've seen him hit some inside out forehands that are almost off pace off the court. And he's, he means that shot. Yeah. He knows where to put the ball. Uh, And, and the fact that he's won five titles, he didn't just win the last tournament of the year. He is, he didn't win. He didn't, he didn't lose a set last week. So uh, I see big things for this guy. Yep. Well, he's on that trajectory to the top five because he's improving so fast. I think the injury gave him, a really great appreciation for the game. And I think he felt like he had a chip on his shoulder because everyone was talking about the, the players, his age, Shapovalov, Zverev, Tsitsipas. And he was like, well, I missed this. I missed the boat here. I was injured. I'm just as good as those guys. And he wasn't getting any of that shine because he was on the, on the sidelines dealing with the spinal injury. It just, I think you're right. I, I think it gave him, kind of that extra spunk. Let's move on to, uh, to Zverev. Also, I think it's a great win. Uh, beating team is a huge confidence yeah. for him going into next year. And he, he, he beats all these guys in the court position game, except for maybe Sisipas. Sisipas, but he's got a two handed backhand, which, you know, I love the two hander over the one hander. And so I, again, that return the, the game, it's awesome. So in terms of uh, Zverev, he has the U.S. Open run. Um, we discussed that. And then at, at the French, he gets really defensive in a match that he lost to Yannick Sinner. I mean, he refused to do anything other than counterpunch for that entire match. Uh, but then he played two beautiful weeks of tennis in Cologne and won back-to-back titles. So uh, let's let's take stock of Zverev, who's also in the news uh, for off the court issues this week. And um, I mean, it's just, it's such a roller coaster with, with Alex, it seems. So uh, where are we at now? Sure. Well, first off, I'm, you know, I'm the first to uh, be hard on him about his inability to play clutch tennis or to play big boy tennis when it counts and to, to really develop his second serve. We've talked about how, you know, maybe the technique can, can uh, really impact on his serve, can impact giving him the yips. 
But then, like you said, he goes to Cologne with the same technique, assumingly, I haven't really studied it, didn't make yeah. any changes. And he's, and he's serving consistently and he's serving well. So that, that would suggest that it's more of a mental thing than a technical thing rather than doing an overhaul. But what I like, you know, one, what I liked about the U S open is that he fought through tough times to get to the finals. He didn't, you know, he could have easily lost some of those matches. He was down two sets to love, I believe in a match at the U open. And so loved how he fought and found a way to get to the finals. Of the open didn't like how he finished the U S open. Uh, I was always a believer when I played, and again, I, I never did one one hundredth of what these guys are doing. So let me be very clear for anyone who's going to comment. I am never trying to compare myself. I'm just trying to provide perspective and insight from a former pro. But whenever I noticed I was tentative in moments on the tour, you know, the language, the, the the mantra in my head or the narrative in my head was always, okay, how do you want to go out here or play for your future? And a lot of times that would allow me to play big boy tennis and, and to play bigger. And so I just think with him, it's a mindset shift in the moment to really commit to the type of tennis that he wants to play, the type of tennis that his future would allow him to be the number one player in the world. And in the moment, he's got to remember that, that I'm playing for my future and I need to go for my shots. And so I love how he bounced back in Cologne. I realized these tournaments were on home soil and, he even joked, I wish every tournament was in Germany. I think it helps that he's playing there and he's comfortable. It's indoors. It's a little bit, you know, the elements uh, aren't as in play. Uh, but, you know, he easily could have gone in a skid after that choke at the U.S. Open, and he didn't. And so that actually impresses me. As much as I give him a hard time about his mental game, that impresses me that he's able to shift and bounce back that fast and win two titles and winning the first title. And he comes back in the same city and was at the same venue as well. Yeah. Same venue, two weeks in a row. That's not easy to do to just every day show up in the same, you like to get on a plane and go somewhere else and start again, but just staying in that rhythm and winning 10 matches, nine matches, whatever it was, it's absolutely phenomenal. But what, you know, what I would like to see with him it's clear that he has the ability level to beat everyone in the world and, and to be number one in the world. So what I'd like to see him is step up the mental and emotional uh, capacity to go for his shots on a consistent basis. And that seems to be bleeding off the court as well, because he's has, he's had a couple of off court events uh, come up recently. It's, it's kind of like how you show up in your life, you know, and, you know, me being a performance coach as well and working with CEOs and athletes, we're always looking for how can we be the best version of ourselves. The best version of Alexander Zarev is hitting that second serve. The best version of him is making sure he does everything he can off the court uh, to be respected by everyone he comes in contact with. And so if I were coaching him, working with him, uh, on his leadership skills, on his skills as an athlete, uh, I'd be focusing a lot on who does he want to be? Who does he want to, who does he want to show up as every day? What kind of a person, what is, what are his value systems on and off the court? And I think if he could do work in that area, it looks like he has the capability to do, uh, special things. He's a special human being. He just has work to do just like all of us. Well, one thing that, that I think we've been calling for that he did do well in Cologne 
um, is he was going after his forehand. He was flattening it out. He wasn't hitting that loopy kind of, he, he used to have, you know, this very exaggerated racket drop um, right before contact. Then he would really brush up on it. Um, and now he, he seems to be kind of taking it back and hitting it, hitting right through it um, more like Del Potro. Um, so I think that's good. But David Ferrer. Yeah. I think David, that's the David Ferrer I, factor because as soon as he got with him, that forehand got flatter. I agree. I totally yeah. think Ferrer said, let's stop brushing up, like hit through yeah. it, you know? Um, so I, I agree. And yeah, off the court there, there, there have been, there have been some, there's, it has been turbulent his entire career. So let's not, let's just make sure we, we make it clear. It's not just this week. Um, it's not just this week. It's really been a constant. So the quieter things get off the court, the easier I think things will get for him on the court. Yeah, you know, I'm a Denver Broncos fan. I hope you're not a Jets fan or a Giants fan, but I'm a Jets fan. Uh, you're a Jets fan. Okay. Well, as you can see, that program is in disarray and for multiple reasons. The Denver Broncos, uh, maybe not equally, but they've, they've really struggled. And we have a running back that we signed to a big, con- a big contract, uh, Melvin Gordon, and he got a DUI a week and a half ago on a Tuesday night in downtown Denver guy signed, you know, he signs a $16 million contract. He's got the money in the bank. It's a Tuesday night. Number one, you shouldn't be out downtown drinking four days before a game. Okay. Save it for the off season. But if you're going to have a couple drinks and I'd get to my point around about Zarev in a second, if you're going to have a couple drinks, hire a driver. Like you could pay a driver full time. You could pay him a hundred K a year and say on demand, I will text you if I need a ride home. And what I keep wondering with these athletes is why don't they have an agent or a coach that they hire that's specifically responsible to help them see their blind spots so they can possibly make better decisions. And I look at a guy like Alex, I'm sure he has great mentors in his life, his father, his brother, I'm sure hopefully his agent, his team, but you just think it, you, these, these players are investing so much into their tennis. They should really be getting these kids that are 23 years old and saying, we need to get him a, a coach or a person to help him navigate the challenges that he's going to face off the court. You know, how do you handle relationships? How do you handle the media? How do you handle uh, when a business relationship goes sour? Like, all of these things. And a lot of times these players, their team actually might not have the skill set to do it. And I just think a a kid like that uh, requires some guidance and some leadership. And some of these players don't want to hear it. They don't want to be coached. They think they know it all. So that makes it difficult. But I think we can, a lot of these athletes could uh, make more money, have a better brand, be more successful, be happier uh, if they had guidance in these tricky areas that when, when things come up as they become bigger and bigger stars. And that's one of the things I look at, you know, I'm on the other side of my career, but I look at now from afar. And one of my missions is not only tennis evolution and helping people get better at tennis, but you know, how, how to help people find their legacy and their vision. And I think someone like Federer is very clear on who he is and his vision and someone like Nadal, very clear And so these younger players, you want to help them get clear on their vision and how they're going to treat others 
um, so that uh, they can stay out of trouble and, and not be in the press. Uh, whether those, whether allegations are true or not, you never want to even have that come up. Mm-hmm. You never want to be in a position where there's even a risk that can, it could come up. And yes, it can happen even if you do everything by the book, but uh, hopefully he'll learn from all these situations, uh, whatever, how, what, however they've transpired and he can have a great year next year, but I think it's going to be difficult for him to be number one in the world if he's got stuff off the court that's not settled. Sure. That's a, a really good point about having that person on your team, but there's got to be mutual respect, right? That's a difficult relationship to have. I interviewed David Falk this summer, who is uh, Michael Jordan's longtime agent. And I asked, uh, I asked Mr. Falk, what's the angriest Michael Jordan has ever been at you? And he said, when Michael played golf with Slim Brulee, who was a shady figure involved in, I believe, gambling and Ponzi schemes. When Michael played golf with him, I said, you are tarnishing your reputation and you're tearing down everything you've ever worked for. And Michael was so angry. Uh, Michael said, all you care about is endorsements. And David responded, I will quit right now. You can have, you can have all of it. I, I don't care. We can cancel all of your endorsements right now. I care about you, your legacy, your reputation. And that was not okay. Anyway, they worked it out, but that is the kind of relationship that you're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, exactly. And take it a step further. I mean, an agent oftentimes is that person, but imagine if there was actually someone on the team and maybe this will be the future, but you know, you get your physiotherapist, you have your serve coach, you have who's your coach guiding you in these things. But the challenge is that a lot of these athletes, great example about Jordan. They think they're invincible. They think that they're, they can't get caught. They won't get in trouble. They can do things. They have more leeway. Nobody calls them on their shit. Pardon my language, but they don't, they, they don't think they need help in this area. And so to your point, when I work with athletes or players, I can't work with the ones that don't think they need help. These are usually the people that are either, they're not desperate, but they really recognize that there is a blind spot or something they need to improve. And most of these athletes don't think they have an issue. And until they can admit that they need help, and it's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength to say, hey, I just want to be better. I just want to be a better person. I want to treat people better. I want to make better decisions. Until that happens, um, it's, it's that relationship will never really develop. And so I think you find that with athletes, it's challenging. And, you know, I look at Djokovic, he's come a long way. He's done a lot of self-growth and, and personal reflection. He's not the same person now than he was at 23. He still has work to do, and I bet he would admit that. Um, so someone like Zarev, who's what, 23 now? Is he 23 or is he older? 23? I believe he's 23. Yeah, I mean, the guy's been around a long time and he's only 23. He's going to be a different person at 28, 29, 30 than he is now. But you want to try to clean things up. He's got Federer in his corner, I'm sure. I mean, they, they have the same agent. They hang out. I mean, you can't look at a better model, you know, someone to emulate on how he conducted his career, how he built his brand. Uh, he's the maestro when it comes to that. So uh, I would recommend someone like Alex just really tapping into some mentorship with someone like Roger. Sure. Jeff, always a pleasure. This was a lot of fun and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much.